I'm Dijan. Welcome to Tantra Log. Uh, this is a podcast for the spiritually curious. So if you like to reflect on Tantra, yoga, inner work, meditation, wellness and self-development, you may find lots of information, personal stories of practitioners and micro practices for you to experience, to look inward and do something good for yourself. Thank you for joining in. What is um, a life of a, a person who is really deeply practicing yoga in a modern world without uh, staying in an ashram or a monastery uh, look like? And uh, we put the topic of lifestyle um, in, as a kind of a pun uh, because lifestyle is something else than being a yogi or yogini. Uh, lifestyle is around a group of people who are kind of connected through a shared hobby or a shared interest or a shared goal. Uh, imagine uh, a bunch of people who are very much into uh, environmental sensitivity, leaving the city and investing on a joint land and uh, building an ecological community, a sustainable community. They are shared around some lifestyle principles uh, that connect them, that work for them. And eventually it turns into a group thing. It becomes uh, a norm for that group. And sometimes that norm can, that those norms can even be very limiting, very uh, definitive. And such definitive norms can also lead to confusion, a mixing of the goal, and uh, the very way the people live is associated with uh, a certain lifestyle. Uh, and uh, we in Samyama in general, I'm, I'm not talking as a spokesperson, but we, talk, we make jokes around it a lot. Uh, we find it a bit um, absurd uh, to believe that you need to dress yourself in a certain way, you need to act in a certain way, you need to use this particular jargon, or uh, you need to impose certain values on yourself, on your, on your loved ones, because you're a yogi. Uh, so lifestyle is something else than practicing yoga. You may practice yoga and have uh, whatever lifestyle you choose, uh, but the particular uh, lifestyle choices that are associated uh, with yoga practitioners can be uh, misleading and can turn uh, people into uh, stereotyping. I also had the privilege, let this, uh, let's say, the opportunity to live in hubs where people who are really into yoga, into meditation get together. And in those hubs there are lots of commonalities, especially around diet, about around the words that are being uttered, around uh, clothing, around interaction uh, with people, there's long hugs, like three-minute hugs. If you are not into three-minute hugs, 
then uh, your heart is closed. Well, maybe I'm sensitive to smell and I don't want to have uh, the stink of uh, the perfume or words, the sweat of everyone on me. Or maybe I find it a bit disrespectful towards everyone around uh, that I'm hugging a person for several minutes. Maybe I just want to do it when I feel like it instead of a must-do uh, because we are yogis. So. This is one thing uh, to make fun of. Or, you know, eye-gazing all of a sudden and uh, getting lost into each other. I love eye-gazing. It's an amazing practice. It's a very transfigurative practice. But uh, I find it odd that uh, it's, it's, it's common to do it, you know, in public spaces. That is unfortunate in a way because then people who would really benefit from yoga, from meditation or from a... A spiritual lifestyle develop uh, phobias uh, because of stereotyping. We would like you to have that discrimination as well. Uh, know what is around the practice of yoga and uh, also have the discrimination to say uh, to see what is uh, the decoration uh, around the practice. Um, all yogi communities probably have uh, had their norms but again this was highly influenced by the local culture, by the physical realities, the type of practice that you do, the type of diet that you have, the type of conduct between uh, men and women that is out there is very different when you're in Tibetan mountains or in the Kashmir valleys and, uh, or in the heat of uh, the south of India. Or, you know, it's different. It's simply different. And this has nothing to do with the essence of uh, these teachings. Uh, you can be a very, very regular person, uh, fully attuned with uh, the realities of a city life, with the way of speaking, way of dressing, uh, way of acting. But in your privacy, you may lead a very, very yogic life. By now, I guess we know already, everybody uh, has uh, spiritual aspirations, spiritual needs. They may be dimmed and they may be very loud. Uh, they may come with some questions and not the others. However, we are all spiritual beings. Of course, there is, uh, there is a comfort doing practicing spirituality in a context like that. Why do we have a, a retreat center in Bali? Because Bali is uh, an amazing a spiritually elevated place. Uh, it's a tiny island uh, where Hindu culture survived. Every day there are people doing rituals, there are people doing ceremonies. Every morning they start the day with offering, uh, with making offerings to the uh, deities, with the to the entities. They are very, very connected. And also there happens to be a spiritual community uh, where nobody would be uh, reacting to you if you dedicate your entire day for a whole month, for a whole year, even several years to your spiritual practice. Nobody would think it's weird. Whereas when I first told my father, uh, when he asked me, how much time do you take for practicing? And at that time it was, I don't know, minimum two hours, uh, sometimes more. He was like, 
how can you spend two hours of your day just practicing yoga? He didn't even understand. For him, it doesn't make sense. It's not in his reality. Not that he's judging or anything. He simply, it's, it's very new. Whereas when you go to uh, a place like that, you can really drop everything else and totally dedicate yourself into practice. And uh, that I would wish for all of you to experience whenever you feel uh, the need for that. So just to put it out there with its pluses and minuses, the minus being creating a stigma, creating a stereotype around uh, how a yoga practitioner should look like, eat like, behave like, which may be far from the truth. Uh, on the plus side, allowing you the possibility to really dive deep into your practice without any judgment in a supportive environment. Even practically in a supportive environment where you can find all kinds of yoga equipment, all kinds of different courses and retreats, many levels of teachers, uh, amazing healthy food options, you know, all of that come together, uh, not coincidentally, of course, because of some natural urges uh, that a person uh, develops. Uh, so after talking about uh, this uh, dogmas and puritanism, uh, actually, I want to say a few more words about puritanism. Uh, as I said, everybody is, has a spiritual inclination and globally there is more and more need uh, and also desire to connect uh, to uh, those hidden aspects of ourselves. And some do it through uh, their hobbies, through their art, through uh, inner work, through therapy, and others do it through the structured practices. Uh, yogis do have a more puritanic approach most of the time. Uh, in a very, very like classical yoga practice, uh, a very pure, clean diet is favored. The body is considered as the temple and it's very well taken care of. Uh, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, these are uh, abstained from because the yogi wants to reach altered states uh, by its own will, by the brilliance of its own mind after the training that it requires, instead of taking a shortcut and going there through drugs and then falling back and not knowing what to do. So uh, there is a particular uh, need for simplicity, uh, maybe purity in the environment, both in the physical sense and in the interactions. There's a need for more isolation at times. So these are quite some puritanic values that develop naturally when you go very deep into yoga. And uh, it may be required for a while, for some a short while, for others a long while. It's totally up to the person. Mananda Mai uh, took a vow of silence for a few years, if I remember correctly, just because she just wanted to be uh, with God and didn't want to interact with anyone, where she, and she had a huge following. So it's, it has nothing to do with the level of practice necessarily. Uh, I'm not saying these are needed only at the initial levels and then you can drop it, but it may be the case for some saints. 
like going through a very austere and puritanic time and then dropping all, all of it. And there are also tantricas, tantric practitioners, which are against all kinds of puritanism, which are against all kinds of dogma or all kinds of rule and uh, go hard on. But you, you come across this puritanism of uh, yoga a lot and you may feel it yourself. I, I did. And they, there came a time where I also needed to have a more of a balance because I found myself straying from the tantric path in that sense. You know, it's tantric path doesn't mean that you live in a bubble of your making and everything that is outside of that bubble is all a threat for you all of a sudden. But that's what I experienced. So my search now is more an integration of uh, the vertical and horizontal paths. And I am a bit more mindful to my own Puritanism and I let go of uh, several dimensions of it, let's say. And now uh, we can uh, slowly dive into the uh, main uh, topics that I want to cover in this talk. Um, one uh, principle of a yogic lifestyle, the inner work, the ethical compass. Yoga doesn't come in, in a package with inner work or psychological work. There are even yogis, uh, very strong schools, that totally uh, neglect this psychobabble. They would say, this is all drama, this is all game of the mind, just let that go and focus on the, uh, on the movement of energy, focus on uh, the God consciousness, focus on the actual purpose, don't waste your time. Because you can swim in the mud, you can analyze and analyze and analyze, and there will still be drama. Why? Because our mind constantly creates stories. Just because we have resolved some childhood issues or we have resolved some uh, hidden trauma that was in ourselves, it doesn't mean there is an end to it. It kept on uh, being regenerated or the memories, the frozen memories are a lot from our childhood and how many of them can you really tackle. So it's time to take responsibility of our now and act accordingly. Uh, even some psychotherapists have that approach, you know, like don't dig uh, into your uh, shadows so much. Take responsibility of the now and act accordingly. Uh, retrain your cognitive behavior, etc., etc. Uh, and that's all valid. Uh, there are also paths, uh, more horizontal paths, that exactly work with the energy of emotion. I mentioned that before. Emotion is energy in motion. So if there is energy, then I can turn this energy into uh, my quest uh, for, the, uh, for the liberation. And I can adopt practices that work with this energy and uh, as a springboard. That also makes sense. So there are different horizontal and vertical paths, as you know by now. Um, however, this does not necessarily exclude totally the ethical and moral conduct. Yama and Niyama can be very highlighted on your path. But Apinavagupta would also say things like, drop all of this. Drop Yama and Niyama. You are God. And that would be a very tantric, monistic approach. So there are secrets within secrets within secrets. 
and when on the path you explore you unfold uh, if your soul needs uh, the ethical and moral training and yogis would say you may because of your karmic load you may because of your past life stories then you will need to go through that journey and you will need to be strict with, uh, strict with yamas and niyamas, strict with shadow work, strict with inner work, until you can really, really be, feel ready, be ready for a total aspiration uh, towards liberation. And whereas you may be at a place, again, according to your karmic luggage, where you need to drop all these and say, I am God, and start from there. Who am I to say, you know? But different teachings uh, have different attitudes towards that. And that's also one of the reasons why having too many schools is not really recommended. As I said, ideally one school, so that you don't have... With every teacher you need to fix something else. With every teacher you need to have a different path. So if your teachers are totally contradicting each other, you will just end up a mess. So uh, that's, uh, that's the value of the ethical and moral compass. In my experience, uh, as an urban person, as a person who has uh, born into this uh, time period, who had a totally city urban life and training and education, I did feel the necessity to go back into yamas and niyamas. The main reason for me to change my career was I couldn't handle the aggression of uh, the profit-making world. I love money. I, I, I am happy to make money and I'm happy to make, make others make money. That has nothing to do with that energy. It has to do with uh, the dynamics of the interrelations that I was in, um, which were very uh, regular. It was nothing out of the ordinary. However, for me, there was a need to deconstruct everything and have a moral compass like uh, yamas and niyamas. Go through some deep and guided inner work to uh, understand my patterns of behavior programmed uh, due to past traumas. So for me it was necessary and for me it was necessary to do it for a certain period of time and then uh, get supervision uh, for, the, for the periods after instead of staying in that realm. Uh, eventually I went back to my more transcendental practices. However, always with the anchor of the heart, with the anchor of the inner work, uh, because I'm searching uh, integration. You may say, I am only on the uh, transcendental path and I'm not going to look at it. The tricky thing there, the tricky thing there is most of these teachings come from environments uh, that are very austere, that are very Vedic. Uh, most of these yoga and meditation teachings come from masters who used to live in a very contained environment according to the tradition. Once these masters came to the uh, West, so to say, once these masters uh, faced abundance of uh, comfort, abundance of luxury, 
abundance of sexuality, abundance of drama, emotionality that they were not used to, many of them collapsed. Many of them got distorted. Many of them didn't know how to accommodate all of that. Not saying all, but many. That's why we read about so many uh, crisis stories in different spiritual schools. I'm not saying that you need to buy everything that the media offers around what's been going on in the spiritual cycles, but still uh, there, there is a recognized challenge in that. I am already born into it somehow. I am already subjected to it somehow. So I find that inner work as an essential step if I choose to live in this life, if I choose to have a more tantric approach. So this is a big part of a yogic way of living. First of all, making the choice, which path are you on? And if that path involves life, if that path is tantric, you need to find your tools, your compass to navigate uh, because uh, desire is a very strong aspect of the tantric path. On a Vedantic path, you want to have equanimity towards all desires and aversion. On a tantric path, you, you also need that equanimity while you are uh, experiencing the objects of your desire and aversion. That's even more tricky. That's playing with fire. Thank you for listening to my podcast on Tantra Log. Please subscribe if you like this content and feel free to share it with your friends and loved ones. See you at our next talk.